in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to where we watch movies, then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and today, joining me, as always, is my good friend and co-host, John Flack. John, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. How about yourself? I am very excited. Do you know why I'm excited? No, why are you excited? Because we're going to do the show, and it excites me. That That is cause for excitement. It is. And we have a pretty good guest today, too. Uh, you know, maybe already a familiar voice. Record two times. Chad Robinson. Hooray, plan B. Hi, everybody. Chad's taking a break from his uh, fraternity uh, recruitment. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I bought a bunch of pink polos. It'll be great. Going to meet the Brads of the world. We've got to (laughs) unite. So, Chad, people got a little feel for you last time, but I still think they can get to know you just a little bit better. Uh, Are you ready for a few questions here? I'm ready, sir. They're going to be personal questions. Like, what is the best era for horror slash Halloween movies, in your opinion? 1980 to 1985 for me. Uh, you have a whole bunch of big hits and franchise starters. You've got The Shining, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, The Evil Dead, The Thing, Gremlins, Poltergeist, American Werewolf in London, Reanimator, Fright Night, Day of the Dead, Halloween 2. The list goes on. It's just a wonderful era for those types of movies. Uh, that is an impressive list that you spouted off just off the cuff and off the top of your head that you didn't know this question was coming. Very impressive. (laughs) Nice little bit of transparency there. Uh, Funniest movie theater audience reaction that you've witnessed. Doesn't have to be a horror movie. Just what's your, like, what's the funniest thing that's happening in the theater as far as the audience goes? Oh man. So I went with a mutual friend of all of ours, uh, Brian Fry, maybe future podcast. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we saw League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I don't know why. Maybe because it just had Sean Connery. In the theater? Was a, in the theater. It was a god-awful movie. Um, but the audience was in on how bad it was. So it was just like a Mystery Science Theater 3000 uh, screening. There was riffing the entire time. Sang the Isengard theme tune from Lord of the Rings when they had an Ironwick scene. You know, that da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, we were laughing at, like, there's a big giant sub in the middle of Venice's canals that makes no sense. Uh, Sean Connery's character is magically revived. Lord of the Rings, again, was really big. We're like, oh, it's Quartermain the White. He's returned. It just, it was a ridiculous experience, and it made a bad movie a lot better. Well, anything would, other than the movie. So, most regretful horror movie experience. Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, I've seen some bad ones, but Bloody Bloody Bible Camp 
is probably the worst like D level movie I've seen. Uh, it it's obviously making fun of religious Bible camps and the killers uh, is slaughtering these really naive teens. It has Ron Jeremy in it. It is just irredeemable. It is a terrible movie. Please don't see it. So it's not your favorite Ron Jeremy film. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a proper way to answer that question? Um, there is not. <laughs> set set for failure. All right, Chad, have you seen any movies lately, though? Yeah, I did. Uh, I've seen the movie Ah Zombies. That was kind of fun. Um, group of friends that get bitten, but they don't know they're zombies. It's told by from their point of view. Uh, it switches to black and white when it goes to normal people's point of view. So the zombies think they're acting normally. Then it switches to the normal population, and they're looking at these zombies doing ridiculous things. It's it's an interesting concept. But really, uh, right now I've been binging The Haunting of Hill House. It's a new series on Netflix. It's, it's incredible. I'm on the very last episode. I'm holding off on watching it because I just don't want it to end. It's honestly probably the single scariest show I've ever seen. Uh, it's, it's great. If anyone's not binge-watching it, please start. It is the season. Wow. Uh, now that we have a flavor for Chad, I got to say, who's ready for some movies today? Today we're doing the 2007 film The Mist. Uh, not The Fog, but The Mist. It came out in 2007, as I mentioned. It grossed $25.5 million, placing it at 94th in the box office on the year. Uh, so that's not the not the highest ranking, but horror movies don't always come in real high. And uh, so that put it uh, behind the Nancy Drew movie at 93 and ahead of The Reaping at 95. Um, took only 37 days to shoot. Uh, IMDb rating gives us 7.2. Rotten Tomatoes gives this 72% critic score and an audience score of 65%. Box Office Mojo provided all the numbers for me, so if I'm not right, blame it on them. Um, guys, going into this movie, what were your expectations? Had you seen it before? Did you like it? How long had it been uh, since you had first seen it? And, uh, you know, what were you expecting coming in? Chad, you go first. I had never seen this movie. Uh, it's a horror movie that just... Hadn't made my list so far, uh, so I didn't know what to expect. John kind of warned me that it was heavy ahead of time. I, I don't know how much I bought into it initially. I did text him immediately immediately after I watched it and said, yep, you were right. <laughs> uh, to be honest, when I first saw it advertised, I thought it just looked like a dumb, another dumb CGI monster-driven movie. It just it didn't look interesting at all, so... Other than being told it was heavy, I wasn't expecting much from this. There's that word again. Heavy. What's wrong with your gravitational mm -hmm. pull in the future? <laughs> John! Uh <-huh. laughs> All right. Well, you know, when, when this movie came out, I really didn't know much about the story. I knew it was a Stephen King uh, novella, I believe, but I... The, my first thought was honestly The Fog, and I was kind of like, Ugh, because they had done a remake of The Fog just a few years before that. It did that. not I was go kinda, well either. Yeah, and it, it, I was, so I was kind of nervous. But when I saw that Frank Darabont had made the movie, and considering his previous Stephen King work films were fantastic, uh, 
Um, I was willing to give it a shot, especially once I saw the cast. Uh, I did not catch it in theaters, but uh, I did catch it when it came out on video. So uh, luckily my brother had warned me not to read anything about it. And so I didn't, and I'm, I'm very glad I didn't. So I went in with, you know, kind of an open mind, and I was very pleasantly surprised. Uh, I was surprised at how much depth the movie had. Yeah, and uh, I had not seen this one before either. It was on my list of movies to see, and in prepping for this, uh, you know, felt like about the right era. Um, I don't know why we just gotten off of uh, Halloween with John Carpenter movie, and that kind of made me think about the fog, and just thinking about the fog made me think about the mist, and thinking, hmm, I need to see that. So uh, I went in with not a lot of preconceptions other than I saw a trailer. It looked neat, and I wanted to see it. Um, I got a text from Chad before, right before I watched it saying, like, this is heavy. And, um, you know, I'm one of those people who likes to know, like, almost nothing. Like, if you want to recommend a movie to me, just say to see it. That's all I need. And um, uh, I went in not knowing what to expect. I enjoyed the movie uh, for the most part. And uh, so I kind of got the movie I wanted to, uh, but... With maybe one one exception, and we'll get to that in later. So, I'll be honest. I had to go and watch one of my favorite slashers to kind of cleanse my palate after this. I told John, I was just like, I'm, I'm sad. I'm having a hard time dealing with this. I'm gonna go watch dumb teenagers get killed. Well, it's like when Fry and I saw House of a Thousand Corpses in the our college dorm, and afterwards, Fry's first words for me is like, "Man, I feel like I need to go to church." Like. Yep, that's an appropriate reaction to that movie. Yeah. Well, we're tiptoeing around it, so let's not dilly-dally anymore. Let's get into it. But before we do, I can't believe we got this endorsement. We have uh, a special message from a uh, high-ranking government official that you guys may be familiar with. Here we go. It's me, Donald J. Trump. You know, being president is very easy for a smart lion like myself. In fact, now that I'm president, I have a lot of free time on my very large hands. When I'm playing golf at my beautiful golf course in my logo, I enjoy listening to my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. It's true. Believe me when I tell you this. The Retro Movie Roundtable is the best podcast in all of the internet. John and Russell are tremendous people. They are really great podcast hosts. They bring in some really wonderful guests, and trust me when I say this, they are the best guests of any podcast in the world. We need to go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you get them. Give the show a tremendous five-star rating and review. Leave your comments and suggestions in the show, okay? Okay? You're going to want to like the show on Facebook, too. You may even want to send an email to RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. America, it's very simple. If you want to make the show better and grow audiences, you're going to need your feedback. With your help, America, we can make movies great again. All right. We're back. And you should know at this point, uh, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. How about that, John? The president... Is a fan of the show. You know, I'm I'm just glad he didn't really call us fakes or SOBs. So that was more positive than I would have thought. Yeah, he doesn't tend to like like anything. So uh, that's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. I, I, he likes cheeseburgers. We, we, we've got to be doing something right. Yeah, he likes cheeseburgers in our show. Fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, all right, Chad, why don't you guide us in a plot summary if, and give us a refresher for those who maybe hadn't seen it in a while. Absolutely. 
So the star of the good Punisher movie and his young son get stuck at a grocery store because we've already done a movie where people are stuck at a mall surrounded by monsters. While there, a mist descends on the town and an injured man runs into the store screaming that there's something out there. The father and son are now trapped with a diverse cast of characters, including a religious nutcase named Mrs. Carmody, bikers, soldiers, cashiers, half the cast of The Walking Dead Season 1, and Raymond Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Various people try to leave the store, but ultimately meet grisly fates as they are picked off by the creatures residing in the mist. The creatures themselves are diverse, from tentacle beasts to mutant spiders to flying death bugs and even giant mantises. While planning their next move, the customers are attacked inside of the store and must fend off the assault. Mrs. Carmody is spared by one of the flying creatures as she, she remains still in prayer and the bug doesn't sting her. This naturally leads to Carmody starting a cult, as many people now see her as an agent of God who has correctly predicted Armageddon. She and her new cult members rapidly spiral out of control and start sacrificing people because that's exactly what Jesus would do. A small group, including the father and son, rebels against Carmody, and she's killed by store owner Ollie. What's left of the small group that flees the cult members drives off into the mist toward the father's home to check on his wife. Upon arriving, the small group discovers the house destroyed and the wife dead. So they all agree to just drive until they run out of gas, hoping to escape the mist. After running out of gas, the father agrees to mercifully put everyone out of their misery. He shoots his son and the other three passengers, but does not have a bullet left for himself. So he steps out into the mist, hoping to end his own life. Suddenly, the mist recedes and the U.S. Army appears, carrying people to safety, including a woman who had left the store earlier in the film. The father realizes he was only hours away from rescue and screams in anguish as the film ends with the army triumphing over the creatures and the mist. Yep. Uh, as mentioned, it's heavy, and now we know Ooh. why. Yeah, boy. So, so not the feel-good uh, not the feel good flick of the season, uh, you know? I mean, this is not the blind side. No, 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 it's not. We aren't getting drafted to the Ravens. Although for you, I don't think that's a happy ending. I don't know. I, I still feel good about Big Mike in that one. So, um, <laughs> anyway, um, this is an interesting movie. I, I like movies where the instrument of horror is not so much the premise of giving you jumps and big scares. I like movies like this where you the people are almost the real monsters. It's how the people behave in spite of the situation that's around them. And I think that's a very interesting type of movie. It's uh, th- There are several movies out there like this. Uh, as Chad kind of alluded to, they had done this in a mall. I-, I definitely, this movie has a lot of similarities to Dawn of the Dead, uh, The Fog, even newer movies like The Witch. Um, you know, anytime when you're claustrophobic you're, and you're contained in an environment. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, the, the original Night of the Living Dead zombie movie as well. Um, Chad, am I, am I, am, are, you, are you thinking along the same lines? Is that what uh, you got out of this? Yeah, they even thought about shooting this in uh, black and white as an homage to uh, Night of the Living Dead. That was a, a big influencer. But yeah, I, as I pointed out my summary, I really did get a Dawn of the Dead style feel to this movie. Yeah. Apparently, uh, there's a two-disc version of the film that you can watch it in black and white. Oh, that's really cool. 
Yeah, I just read about that in the research, and I'm kind of interested what that might do to it. Huh. I, I don't normally get that taken aback by uh, just removing color from it. I wonder if the feel is dramatically different. Well, apparently it was something Darabont really wanted uh, originally, but my guess is it just didn't didn't fly off too well. You don't see a lot of black and white movies now anyway. I mean, it happens, but they tend to be indie movies. Yeah. Ah, uh, Zombies. Just watched it. It transitioned. It was kind of a unique use of color. Everything was bright whenever it was the zombie's point of view, and everything was black and white when it was normal citizen's point of view. Huh. Interesting. So, uh, John, what, do you, what are your thoughts on the uh, plot? The plot? I, I mean, yeah, I think that it was probably a tough one. I, I haven't read the book, but I think it would, was probably a tough one to tackle on putting it together for a film. But and I, I know that there were liberties taken with Stephen King's original story, but I think it was pretty well put together. Um, and actually, I watched the special features and saw, saw the scenes that they did cut out. And I think that Darabont did a good job in leaving out some needless things. Because although this is his shortest movie, at least at that point to date, it's not a short movie. No, it's not. Not, for, not by a horror movie standards, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I also haven't read the book, but having read up on it, um, it's actually fairly faithful in a lot of ways. Um, the big differences are uh, Darabont cuts out a lot of things at the beginning, so you get a much better feeling for uh, the ca- the main character uh, before uh, you get into it. So you get a better idea of who Drayton is before he goes to the... So, the, the, you know, Darabont puts you in the action sooner, um, which is probably a good thing for the movie. And the other one is that... Mrs. Carmody is not necessarily um, an an, an evolving threat. She kind of just emerges late, and he adds a lot more depth to this character. The scene where she's on her own in the bathroom, that's all new uh, to the movie. So he did a lot more with that character, uh, perhaps to make a political statement about how people will tilt, bend, and use religion uh, to their advantage. So that was an interesting uh, subplot that happens within this. And uh, the ending uh, is a big one um, as well. So uh, before I go into that, I'm going to throw the other two back at you. Is it a good thing that we get into the action faster? And uh, do you like these changes with Carmody, Chad? Yeah, like you already mentioned, the movie's long enough as far as horror movies go. Um, It borders on that edge of too long. Um, So any any additions, uh, particularly front-loading it, yeah, it just would have felt like it dragged. Uh, I appreciate that they got to the store and things went wrong pretty quickly. Um, as far as the ending, it, it's it's funny reading the, the testings where they had fathers come up. And they said two fathers came up, uh, tears in their eyes, and said, you know, the, the ending is too much. Um, you have to change it. And then two others said the ending is too much, but you need to leave it there. Uh, it's Stephen King himself really liked the the twist, the, the uh, change to his own book. Uh, he hasn't always liked when films have changed. Real quick, let's uh, talk about the change that he made, though. In the book, 
it's left open-ended. There's a crackle on the radio, so there's a little bit of sign of life out there, but then it goes away, so you're not real clear. Is there something out there? Is there not? And there's actually fewer people in the car, and there are still you're still one bullet short. And he thinks to himself, I can, I might have to do something on my own if it comes to this. And so he contemplates the suicide, but he certainly doesn't go through it. And the book doesn't go there. And they're actually in a diner instead of a car, and he leaves his journal uh, at the diner. So it's very open-ended, ambiguous. Do they make it out? Do they make it to safety? Are there people out there? Has this thing consumed the whole world? Lots of questions. Very Stephen King-like ending. Some of his books do end in an open end there. Um, and Darabont did not like that open ending. So, John? Um, I, I, I like the the change of the ending. I, I think for a film, it definitely works better. In books, I can see open endings uh, work better. And I have to give a lot of props to Darabont for this was a non-negotiable term for him. He actually got offered more money by someone else to make this movie if he'd changed the ending. And he said no. That uh, the only way that he agreed with uh, Harvey Weinstein at the time, he said, you cannot change the ending. And it, they, he had a much smaller budget because of it. And uh, I think that that was something else that Stephen King kind of respected. Uh, I, I, so I watched the this guy had had special features and it had a, an interview with the two of them. We're actually more just a conversation between them. And uh, King seemed to really like it's like, I like how you went in there and just said that this is this is how it's going to go and take it or leave it. And I, I just I think it works really well. And I like what Chad said about the, the fathers, because, I mean, Chad and I are both fathers. It, it's just it's a really it was tough when I watched it when I wasn't a father. And it's definitely tougher now. But it's just it resonates so well. And then just that added little cherry at the end that the person they didn't help if they had gone with her they'd have been fine yeah I'm, I'm maybe not as open to the ending as you guys are and i, I I'll, I'll probably talk more on this later but uh i i i like the book better on the opening and ending but i like everything else that i said in terms of the main differences um uh so i a lot of good a lot of good calls there um i just I, i'm a little sour at the finish so john why don't you take us to the cast at this point all right well, we have Thomas Jane as David Drayton, our almost townsperson, but lives outside, raised outside the city, I should say. Uh, painter who is a father and devoted husband, it seems, in this, who is trying to help out his neighbor while getting his own supplies at the same time. Marsha Gay Harden as Mrs. Carmody, uh, kind of the town kook religious fanatic who we talked about was apparently not as big in the book. Uh, Laurie Holden plays Amanda Dumfries, who is a new teacher at a local school. And uh, Andre Brower plays Brent Norton, uh, David Drayton's neighbor, who, who's had a bit of a tiff with him and a lot of people in the town because he's a big city attorney that helped on a big lawsuit. Uh, Toby Jones plays Ollie Weeks. Uh, he's the assistant manager, but very capable person uh for the supermarket william sadler as jim grondon who is kind of an angry uh but seemingly weak-minded mechanic uh, jeffrey demun is dan miller uh the man who comes into the market and town person to warn everybody uh, and i francis sternhagen as irene repler 
who is a sassy older teacher who seems to know everybody in town. Sam Whitwer plays Private Jessup, uh, a young soldier who is stationed at the nearby Arrowhead Project military base. Alexa Davalos plays our cashier for the supermarket and love interest to Private Jessup. Nathan Gamble as Billy Drayton, David's eight-year-old son. And Robert Tre... I don't know if you all know how to pronounce this. Trevelier or Trevelier, but as Bud Brown, who is the actual manager and seems to take his job a little too seriously. David Jensen is Myron LaFleur, a mechanic who also works with Jim, seems to be a little bit more sarcastic than he is. And Andy Stahl as Mike Hatlin, uh, one of David's group at the supermarket. Chris Owen, who plays Norm, seemingly the Shermanator from American Pie, graduated to as a bag boy. And Melissa McBride plays an unnamed woman, if, as I recall, and left her kids at home and needs to leave the supermarket. Yeah, big cast, big cast. A lot of people to go through there. Um, I'm not a Walking Dead person, but it looks like Thomas Jane was actually considered for the role of Rick Grimes in Walking Dead. And I think, Chad, you're a watcher of this show. He's the main character, right? Yeah, yeah. It's played by Andrew Lincoln. Yeah. Any other casting notes that you guys wanted to call it? Didn't you say that there's a couple of Walking Dead connections? Yeah, there... Uh, yeah, there's a few of them. Uh, Laurie Holden. Uh, what was her name in The Walking Dead? Andrea. Uh, Andrea, that's it. Jeffrey D. Munn, Melissa McBride, and Juan Gabriel Pereira uh, yeah. all have roles in The Walking Dead as well as Laurie Holden. Yep, Jeffrey D. Munn is Dale. Melissa McBride is Carol. I actually didn't look up Juan Pereira, so I'm not sure who he is. Well, and there's a number of actors and actresses in here who are just repeat Darabont fans because Jeffrey DeMunn was also in The Green Mile uh, before this, uh, playing one of the security guard or the prison guards. So he must be a longtime Darabont co-worker. Yeah. Um, I want to also call out that uh, Chris Owen uh, there, I recognized him from... Uh, I guess he was a kid actor as well. Oh, yeah, he was an Angus. Yes, he was. Yep. He was the sidekick. Uh, I actually <clears throat> may have incorrectly thought that he was Scott Farkas from uh, A Christmas Story with Yellow Eyes, but I don't think he is. No, I'd be going back pretty far. I, I, I see the resemblance, but... I actually, I was quite convinced, and I was looking it up now, and turns out... No, he was not Scott Farkas, nor does he have yellow eyes. So <laughs> he had yellow eyes. Um, so what do we think about Darabont as a, as a director? We kind of started talking about some of the decisions that he was making based on the book, but uh, it, it, obviously great director. Uh, you know, he hasn't got a lot of movies to his name. He takes a lot of time between projects. He's in 83. He did Woman in the Room, 94, Shawshank Redemption, well-loved movie, 99, he comes back and does The Green Mile. Both of those are Stephen King adaptations. 2001, he does The Majestic, the Jim Carrey movie. Uh, 2004, he's a producer, not a director for Collateral. Uh, and uh, 2007, 
Uh, he does the mist here. And then uh, the first two seasons of Walking Dead, he is involved with that, but he's later uh, removed from the, there for budgetary reasons, as I understand it. So not a huge body of work, but uh, it looks like he takes a big shift later in his career going into horror with the mist and Walking Dead. John, what are your thoughts on Darabont? I, I, I think he's fantastic. I And I'd already kind of mentioned, I really like that he kind of stuck to his guns that he had a vision for the film and wasn't willing to shift from that idea and wanted to make the film he wanted to make. And obviously he worked with Stephen King stories before. And, you know, interestingly enough, and I hadn't realized this at the time, but this is the first film he'd done at that point, uh, at least to my knowledge that, it actually took place in, you know, kind of quote unquote present day. Uh, you know, the films you just listed, uh, at least the majority of the story would had taken place in the past. And, uh, you know, with what he did for the movie on the budget, he did, I mean, $18 million in 2007 for a movie is not a lot, especially when you have short schedule, 37 days. Yep. A very quick schedule. They had to bring in an extra, uh, camera team they had to make a second site basically that worked uh, with the show the shield and then you know to make louisiana look like maine is very difficult and apparently stephen hold off king on the location. said he... hold off on the location <laughs> okay well but i, I would say like how how to shoot it is he, he made very good decisions with what little he had kind of like we talked a little bit about carpenter and it's just i i, I think that he made his own film, but with the approval of King, and really assembled a great cast top to bottom when you look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's So he's definitely a well-liked actor, and I think uh, Stephen King would have had a lot of trust in him as well uh, coming into this, because he's made him look really good coming out of Shawshank and Green Mile. Chad Darabont, as a director, uh, both the full body of work as well as his transition into horror here with The Mist. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think he's obviously very talented as far as adapting an existing story. Um, that's where I'm seeing his strength shine through. You know, The Walking Dead was already a visual novel that he adapted into one of the biggest hits in the last century as far as television shows. It's it's still going. Um, I haven't watched it in a couple seasons, but the first season was absolutely amazing the second one dragged a little bit but uh you know shawshank redemption the green mile even the mist all of these were adapted works there and they were done really really well they were faithful but still had his own unique spin Uh, he's all he's obviously very talented in horror as well Uh, he managed to make a stephen king novel more horrifying than it actually was with what happened to uh, the family and the the end result for David, you know, just the ending is the worst thing you could possibly imagine. Yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm with you guys on Darabont's really good filmmaker. His 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 strengths are in storytelling. I don't necessarily think that, uh, and I cannot speak for Walking Dead. I don't know that horror is a natural fit for him. I thought that his ability to build tension uh, in moments of buildup uh, are not real strong, and perhaps that's some of the cutting out of the lead lead into the film. And um, so it's not 
it's not my happiest moment of his career. In fact, uh, having not seen, I hadn't seen Woman in the Room, and it's been, I've, I don't really remember The Majestic very well, but I might say this might be his bottom point as, as a director. Is that too harsh? The, the bar's pretty high. Yeah, I mean, the, the bar is pretty high. I, I think it's interesting to at least kind of point out, and I hadn't really thought of it this way until I saw that conversation that uh, King and Darabont were having, but King kind of noted, he's like, this is kind of a prison film. This is, seems to like what you like to make of mine. And it kind of is. I mean, they're stuck. They're stuck in somewhere. They can't leave. Very much and, so. Yeah, and he, you know, they they talked about that a good bit, and they both have so many references to other films and old TV shows, and uh, I, I forget the Frantic or something like that was one that Stephen King was talking about, where they would just show different things in the cars, where it's like it was flooding or just these really, you know, bad situations where you're just forced into a corner, basically, which is what this really is, and and that's why it's like as far as horror goes i mean there's a little bit more of a psychological aspect of it and just you know kind of what you touched on earlier russell the the idea it's really what people do uh in these situations what fear does to them and uh in essence kind of demagoguery can do to do to people uh i mean it really just becomes kind of you know total chaos there is no rule or law and you know anyone who was somewhat rational had already left because they kind of saw the writing on the wall as it were yeah i think that i think one of his strengths is uh, another part of why he is a good storyteller we talked about that being a strength of the movie Uh, chad made an excellent point out of that i think he does a good job of establishing personalities of some of the people involved he may not have to go through and tell their whole backstory but you get a pretty good idea for who this old lady is or you get a pretty good idea for who this blue collar repairman is or the tough biker in there and um with just a little bit of effort uh he really does a good job of giving you a glimpse into their views and then obviously mrs carmody he uh does a comedy he does a he does a great job of showing you that this lady is seriously crazy Uh, and like she's genuinely crazy she's not just playing it for political power which she certainly is to some degree um but she's also she believes this stuff too and that's that makes her perhaps even scarier so i don't know if your thoughts on that uh anything to add to the storytelling or the aspect of what he did uh, as a director to build these characters chad yeah just you guys both touched on it but really his brand of horror is based on interpersonal relationships. It's even carried over into The Walking Dead. The point of The Walking Dead isn't that zombies are scary, it's that people are scary. And when they're put into life or death situations or just these kind of end of times, Armageddon situations, you know, society breaks down and he just seems fascinated with studying how the different groups and factions will break down. You know, there's always going to be those that lean on religion. There are going to be those that lean on training. And he just seems to delight in examining each of those aspects of the psyche. And I like that it just so quickly into the situation, we are thrown into the idea that everyone is immediately worried about me and mine, like with Melissa McBride's character, that 
you know, it's a lady that is asking for help to get home to, because there's a young child there by herself and no one goes with her. And I mean, you can't really blame David for, when he says, I've got my own kid to worry about. Like you kind of understand that, but nobody else is willing to go. Selfishly, I would not have gone. I would have felt bad about it, but I wouldn't have gone. Well, precisely. And, and I think that that was a good point of kind of storytelling in there that just, hey, when forced into these situations, people tend to go to self-preservation first. And what a fascinating character. I know we're talking about the director, but that character, she wasn't even meant to be brought back initially. It was a last minute decision to bring her back and show her on that army truck. And it just, it made that impact so much stronger. Well, actually, and uh, I'm not sure, uh, the conflicting pieces of information from the internet, obviously the internet is uh, oh, never wrong, but uh, <laughs> at the end of the film, uh, apparently Darabont had planned to bring multiple people from the actual market, including Jim, Bud, Mr. Mackey, and most of, you know, the Carmody's uh, ex-followers actually driving on the truck in addition to Melissa McBride's character. So there was supposed to be two trucks worth of people, and it was supposed to be super frustrating, whereas if he had helped her out, she would have been okay. If he had stayed, he could have been okay, potentially. So it's uh, it was meant to rub it in even farther, however... Uh, the filming had uh, wrapped up, it said, and unfortunately most of the extras and actors had already left because their parts were finished, so Darabont had to scrap this idea, and obviously McBride was the only one who was actually there at the end. But I kind of like that. Like, I should have done, I should have been a good Samaritan. I should have helped her out. I, I was going to say, I, I like the way it ended up, because I think it did say exactly what you're saying, Russell. It's just like, you know what, if I'd have just done, quote-unquote, the right thing, then that would have been my salvation. Yep, yep. Now, who's to say that you would have made it through with a kid? And, you know, I mean, I doubt her road home was easy because uh, things were pretty treacherous in the mist. There's a, there's a collection of all kinds of bad things in the mist. What scared you the most in the mist, Chad? Just that you're unable to see. <laughs> uh, when they remove that sense from you, you're just groping around in ostensibly darkness and waiting to be attacked by a whole host of horrifying things. But I, I think it's the aspect of the unknown for me. John? Um, part of me is uh, agreement with Chad, that kind of the mist itself. But really, it's just kind of the harebrained things that humans come up with. Because it's not even the bad things they do to each other. But even when they finally realize, like, maybe torches and open kerosene buckets aren't a good idea in a chaotic environment. Like, we might catch the place on fire. I thought the scary... Uh, oh, good. And uh, it, it's just as scary as the bugs were. And honestly, for me, for that, the pharmacy was probably the scariest moment, and uh, apparently that actually made Stephen King jump out of his seat at the uh, at the, the screening of it, which uh, Darabont said made his career. But, but, but that mist did just kind of scare me. I'm going to go with the spiders in the pharmacy. I mean, obviously the mist, uh, having your view obscured is scary, but uh, I, the mobility and their ability to shoot acid strings, uh, uh, that wasn't even kind of web, but like these strings of acid that were, I don't know. I felt like that was a pretty uh, pretty scary, uh, I don't know, tapping into the arachnophobia uh, side of things. Someone call John Goodman. <laughs> 
Um, so uh, that does bring me to one thought, though. I kind of mentioned that this wasn't a natural fit for him, and I want to back that up a little bit uh, for horror, that is. I-, I thought some of the camera work doesn't really particularly build good suspense. When you watch the a really great movie like The Exorcist, Halloween, um, some of these movies do something with the camera where they're always panning in and out slowly, so slowly that you really don't notice. But the frame is constantly being altered. They're playing with your peripheral vision. They're focusing on the people's faces a lot. That's something Hitchcock likes, uh, where you're lighting the people's faces and you blur out the, uh, the what's in the background. And you focus on the emotions and the tension of what that character is really feeling. Um, the lighting in a lot of this is really bright and highly detailed. You can see every little thing in the store, every little thing on the shelf. And it feels more like the lighting of a TV show um, than it does of a, of a movie. And John did mention it's not got a high budget, but... I don't know that it sets the right mood. So in my opinion, I, I mean, you could tell right away, the, the day he walks out after the storm, I'm just like, wow, that's that's awfully bright. It looks like it's, uh, I don't know, this looks like it could be another kind of movie. I don't, I don't get, I'm not sure my mood is in the right place um, based off of this. And even The Mist, I, it's not so soupy and there's, it's just a little too bright i would say there's not a sense of darkness that uh, you would have i mean coming off of halloween last week um i maybe i've been spoiled uh am i am i wrong here am i going to am i digging in too deep or do you think there's something to that chad uh, it's not gonna go down as my favorite cinematography um like i said i've been watching the haunting of hill house and they had an episode where almost the entire episode was one moving sweeping shot um it was just masterful and this one did have a lot of cuts to your point it had a lot of bright scenery i I don't know that he was really trying to use lighting or scenery to cause dread again i i think his his main point was let's highlight these people uh so i i don't know that lighting was necessarily as essential to get that across to see but what so, about what about like even in the back stock room, like when the loading dock and stuff like that, it's so bright in there that even when he quote unquote turns off all the lights and starts hitting his head and falling over on things, it's like I can see far too much of what's going on here. And I think it would be scarce as things pounding up against the door if your view is obscured as well. He's scared. But we see too much. I can still see the definition of the concrete block wall. I can see the cracks in the floors and stuff like that. I don't know. Uh, it, uh, it there's me... the architect. There's the architect in this. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. But I, I, I'm sitting there thinking, it's like I feel too oriented. And that feeling of orientation, I, as you said, maybe he doesn't want – maybe it's strictly about the people. But I think anytime you put people on the edge, it makes them scared. I don't know. I didn't get your thoughts on that. John, is is that something that you feel like this movie could have done better? Well, one thing, I, when you said it feels more like a TV show, I I have to say again, he did hire the the camera crew from the TV show The Shield because he had directed an episode of that. So uh, he was looking for, in his mind, quote, a, a more fluid, ragged documentary kind of direction because he had tried to shoot it digitally and he said it, wound up looking too beautiful and uh you know and actually one of the scenes that he cut it's from the beginning of the film 
And actually, the neighbor, Brent, comes over and talks with the wife, and they do better, more shots of the lake that they live on, or port, whatever uh, it was at that point. Uh, and they compared it to an old Ford shot, and it was a really beautiful shot, and I was like, well, dang, this would have been a really nice shot. But then he said it would be all taken out by the mist. But, um, but I, I think that really... You know, the focus, I like that he said documentary kind of style because that gives us more in depth on the characters as opposed to maybe necessarily that feeling about the, the cinematography is really holding this all together. Um, because as Chad said, it's not going to be my favorite cinematography, but also considering the budget that they had, I think they did pretty well especially using an older type cameras it gave it that grainy feeling i like that in those those types of uh films but it's uh i i think he had to take some some choices here with his budget and i i think he did pretty well and i have to respect him for what he did with it okay i won't belabor the point then uh i uh i'll uh now I want to do. I do want to ask you guys what you think about the atmosphere, which is some partially with some of the things that we're getting into now. So, we're located in Maine. Uh, uh, as John mentioned it ahead of time, it is shot in Louisiana. Uh, the time is assumed to be present day, which would have been 2007, and we're in a smaller town, a rural area of Maine. Uh, I don't think we have a town specifically called out, did we? No. Okay. Um, so what do you what how do you feel like he re- reinforced the sense of place with the with the people I, I thought again I thought through the characters is how he did did this the most uh, uh, reinforced this the strongest uh, John uh, how did you get a feeling of place in this one first off I have to say the the drawings that we see in the opening sequence is is really nice because it's the thing it's the dark tower uh, clearly homages to it but being that bad storm it just puts a puts us in a tumultuous feeling right away even when we kind of feel like the storm has passed you see the mist out in the distance and you just know something bad's going on like i mean the movie's called the mist the the posters let you know there's something in the mist it's stephen king so you know there's something out there um and then just being thrust straight into this seemingly everyday supermarket scene where you know as just last week, I, I witnessed here in North Carolina when Hurricane Michael passed through, you know, power outage, stuff like that when it happens. It's just chaotic in there. And it may, gave me a good sense that that's, that's where I am. But people are still trying to get along with their lives, do their business. And then all of a sudden, we're thrust into that. And I think DeMond does a good job of giving that feeling of true fear when he runs into the store. And uh, really, the whole feeling an atmosphere from there on out I think is very cleverly done to just kind of slowly put you into this elevated state of tension and just un- feeling of unknown just it, it, you can tell that people want answers at the beginning but originally initially but then they realize later it's like n- none of the answers are going to come and it's irrelevant Chad, what what do you get for the vibe of this place? Like in the, the the mood that the you know being locked in this supermarket, you know, do you like the location that they chose and all this? I do. I, Dawn of the Dead is one of my favorite movies of all time, so this was very familiar. This was very comfortable for me. Uh, I I did like that 
No. It's a small town. Everyone seems to know each other. Uh, they they all kind of helped introduce us to each other. They pointed out personality traits. They pointed out Mrs. Carmody pretty pretty early and told us about her. Um, you see uh, Andre Brower's character. Uh, he's just that pain neighbor that you can't get along with. Uh, I really I just like re- that. I really like that in this movie. You know, King King's movies seem to do that. They add characters. He is not essential for the movie, and you could, in theory, cut him out, but you'd have a far less interesting movie if you cut him out. Absolutely. Yeah, he was. He's one of my favorites. I I love Brooklyn Nine Nine, so I was really excited to uh, to see him included here. Yeah, and there's racial tensions too uh, between him being a you know black man from the city, and then the white locals who are in a more rural area and he's very insecure about and he knows people say mean things about him and so when you're forced into this situation he can't help but be insecure about these people who have never really been supportive of him before and even though they may be coming together now that that destructive uh, behavior that they exhibited earlier makes it hard to bring people together in this situation and there's divisions that emerge and unfortunately that's that's a real thing and that would really be there in a situation like this potentially yeah and i i like that whole you know feeling that you can tell there's past tension between them as neighbors but in the car right there it seems to be going better they're you know seemingly having jokes and you know talking about the uh, other tabloid reader at the laundromat when they're talking about the military base what's going on up there and uh it 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 shows some real like hey it's my neighbor i have to get along with them like we got to try to build this bridge and then uh, obviously I, i think the two do great at doing that and then everything just goes wrong there later on I've not really been in Maine enough, but uh, as you mentioned, uh, he made Louisiana up enough. And apparently, Stephen King said he was uh, fooled. I think Stephen King's very nice with Darabont because he's treated him very well, made him look very good in some other projects, and made him a lot of money. Uh, I was sitting there myself wondering, it's like, is this Maine? And I haven't been there in a lot. I mean, I have been there, but I was sitting there thinking, it's like, huh, is that is it, does it look like this? And so when it found out later it was Louisiana, I mean, I don't know. Stephen King's more of a New England guy than I am, but I, I don't know. It didn't, didn't, I didn't hit me. But I mean, obviously, I went along with the story. I got into the characters and stuff like that, and I love the old time, uh, rural, very, very simple uh, uh, convenience store they got. The fact that it had that single pane old '70s glass along the front, which offers no protection whatsoever. Um, was a great location to choose, I thought. The actual store itself. Um, let's talk about the special effects a little bit, because this movie has a lot of them in there. Um, Chad, what are some of your special effects thoughts on this, in terms of what looked good, what didn't look good? How did that help, help, help or hurt the movie? I like the tentacles that were introduced to back in the generator room. But honestly, a lot of the creatures that come in, uh, the store attack later on, the flying scorpion-like bugs, and there's another kind of pterodactyl-looking bug. I really didn't feel like that CGI did them any favors. It it looked dated. I mean, yeah, this is this is now an 11-year-old movie, but I I think it's going to age even even more poorly going forward. Uh, 
So that didn't do a lot for me. That was actually a negative on my part. We've already talked about lighting. They obviously had budget constraints. I'm sure that went into the CGI as well. Um, I, again, that those those all play second fiddle for me to the character interactions. So it didn't hurt it too badly, but it, it wasn't a bright point for me. John, special effects. What, what worked and what didn't work for you? I kind of agree with Chad there. I did, I did think that the tentacles, particularly initially, were were pretty good and everything. And actually, the people that made the special effects were recommended by Guillermo del Toro after Darabont asked him what he used in Pan's uh, Labyrinth. I could see which that. Was, which Pan's Labyrinth, was, the effects in that movie were fantastic. Oh, um, I bet. But, you know, from what I understand, that in the novella... There are really aren't much. There isn't much description of what these creatures look like and what they are. It's not really the the central focus of the film. So honestly, he's kind of ha- has to do a lot of this design himself. Um, and so the, I, I think it was probably kind of tough to re- really come up with like a good notion of how to do this properly because. You know, particularly any of the large monsters, we never really get a good look at them. It's always a very fogged view. Uh, it's not like a bad even when should take though, in general. Not, not at all. It's like we get kind of an idea with, with these really large ones, but uh, we don't get a very specific close look at them. Really, it's just uh, in the store that we get a, a closer look at them, uh, and maybe in the pharmacy there. But it's. You know, again, $18 million uh, at that time, it's not a whole lot to to, to make a movie entirely. And uh, I agree with Chad. They, are, they do seem a little dated, particularly now, and probably will look more so in the future. But I don't think to the point where it really takes away from the movie. I'm... Uh... I'm, I have mixed feelings. I feel like the best effects are when the creatures are partially obscured by the fog, like the giant crab-like or mantis-like monsters that we never see entirely that are in front of the store. These are great. I think some of the spiders work well because they move quickly and you don't really get to slow down and you know take them in. I thought the tentacles moved well, but they looked like they were... Um, inserted over top of something. It was like something out of Roger Rabbit coming out of the animated world and inserting themselves into the real world or enchanted, something like that. I didn't think that those... I was very aware that these things were computerized and everything else that was through there. I thought that if there was an opportunity to use practical effects, I think the tentacles needed to have at least half practical effects. This is where you got to get out the rubber and the, the foam rubber and the, uh, the KY jelly and like, you know, paint things in such a way and actually wrap it around your actor so that there's actual slime on their face. And, you know, it gets on the person themselves. And this is just a, like you guys mentioned, it's 2007 at this time, people are probably amazed at what computers can do and things just continue to advance. And it's a constant reminder that, uh, there's just no substitution for the real. And, uh, so it does pull you out of it momentarily, uh, but cert- it, has, it, has, it has high points and low points. And my favorite point for the special effects is actually the gigantic four-legged monster late in the movie. And maybe it's just because I'm so taken back in a Jurassic Park, all struck kind of way where it's shaking the whole vehicle they're in. 
And when I say it's massive, I really mean the most creative looking massive creature that's like got a table like legs that go tower up into the clouds. And then it's got like this large tabletop body full of like legs that are like, you know, dangling down that don't touch the ground or like tentacles that like just like moving constantly. And uh, it's amazing. I don't know that 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 creature really, really impressed me. Well, and the fact that it looked like there were a bunch of those birds that got in the store or pterodactyls, whatever they were, that seemed to be flying alongside it. And it's like, well, if uh, those things were horrifying enough. like, Yeah, I think the bugs look good. The buzzards um, with Chad, they look OK. You know, the fact that they're moving so much helps. But when they slow down, it's not their best moment. And uh, the tentacles for me is I I think a healthy dose of half and half te- uh, computerized versus, uh, and again, darkness would help here. This is another instance where Darabont's lack of use of darkness uh, did not do him any favors. That loading dock, had it been darker, the computerization would have been a lot more forgiving there. So you're looking for like a Frank Oz, Little Shop of Horrors, you know, Audrey 2 was that big giant puppet that they animated. and It, it actually still looks great today and that was 1983 i think yeah yeah and i mean you know i understand that stuff's very expensive to do and you're excited with the new technology i love new technology and trying to do things with technology it's just you know always knowing the right time to use the right thing and sometimes mixed mediums the way to go um one thing i wanted to touch on before we move on though is uh the soundtrack and the score uh did you guys have any feelings on that How, how did that do like what did the music do for you chad I'll be honest, I didn't notice it very much. And John, I know I know we talked about this for the Halloween soundtrack, and you said, you know, a lot of people don't notice the music. Uh, I am guilty of that this time. It just, it didn't stick with me in any way. John? You know, the music during the tense scenes, they do their jobs. I mean, I'm not going to say they are the best of everything that, you know, we hear but the music at the end i think is extremely fitting uh it i think it, it works for the moment very well uh, it is and I, heavy. yes it, it was very well constructed uh it's and it fits in with thomas jane that final shot when they're zooming out like it's just uh th- that's and music-wise, that's the moment of the movie. You know what? Uh, in a way that it was so oppressive and terrible sounding, like that, like it's it's a very oppressive opera-sounding style of vocals with this very hollow, somber type music. As they're leaving the parking lot, and you're like, "Well, this doesn't sound like things are going in a good direction." And sure enough, they pull up, and uh, it's like, "Oh, my wife's dead," and like covered in spider webs, and yeah, that's sad. And then like they they persist with that, and it's just like you kind of get a good feeling that this isn't going to be a happy ending from the soundtrack choice there at the end that John's talking about. So, um, and I'm to some degree, I'll, I'll second what Chad said again. I don't think Darabont necessarily, and forgive me walking dead fans, if you feel differently, but, and I haven't seen it. I don't think horror is a natural fit for him because I don't think he used music to build tension or emotion. Uh, where like, he's worried about his son in the store. Or whether, you know, something could happen uh, as we just came off of Halloween. And that's such a high benchmark uh, for cinematography and, and soundtrack use. But, uh, you know, Carpenter proves that music really does change your mood and makes you scared. And whether the fear comes from the people or from 
the actual instrument of uh, horror, which is the monsters and the mist and the fog, you should just feel uneasy in general. You know, it's a mood that you're trying to set. So, well, the interesting thing I I think on that with with the horror thing, you know, there's up until that point, it had been a long time, at least in my mind, since a good Stephen King horror story had been made into a movie. You are right about that. I mean, I think there were some TV ones, I think, uh, I think that came later now that I think about it. You're right. It had been a while. It had been a, there had been a long list of bad, I mean, some of them I, I kind of like, but a long list of, of poorly adapted horror, you know, films. They really start from to putter Stephen out. King. They really start to putter out in the '90s. You're right. Like uh, he had a very strong '70s and '80s. Uh, and Thomas Jane was even in one of them. I, as much as I really wanted to like Dreamcatcher, I just couldn't. Like, mm-hmm. and uh, that it had a great, again, great cast, had good budget, special effects, just, it just kind of a swing and a miss. So I have to at least give him props for making a Stephen King movie. Maybe that's why he appreciate Stephen King appreciated it so much. He was happy that someone made, <laughs> made Actually, a good that's one. A, that's a good point. He's been on a bad run. <laughs> yeah. It's no shining, but you know what? After what you've done to my last five or six books, I like this. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to remake Carrie already did that. And uh, we'll remake pet cemetery while we're at it. Coming soon. Um, yep. So guys, I think it's time to get into look for this. Uh, Chad, do you want to hit us with any uh, moments or fun facts that you might have found? Sure. So the Mercedes that we see in the very beginning, that uh, Brent Norton, that's crushed by a tree, the neighbor, uh, it was a rental that had been in an accident. It was going to be repaired. The production company paid to use it with the understanding that they wouldn't damage it any further, but uh, apparently they didn't get that message. So they ripped out upholstery, dented the body, scratched the paint. Uh, When they returned it, they got thousands of dollars in bills they said well we really screwed this one up it had to look right it looked right to me so i guess they did a, i guess they did their job john i i had to point this out because of how much stephen king is a new england person but the t-shirt that norm the bag boy is wearing uh that says wkit radio in Bangor, Maine. This is one of the three radio stations that Stephen King owns, actually. And the artwork on the shirt is made by artist Glenn Chadbourne, who makes a lot of the cover art for novels for Stephen King. Hmm. That's interesting. That's, that's cool. Uh, on that note, uh, in the uh, auction scene in the film, a man runs into a uh, wire a rotating bookshelf in there. Uh, action scene. Uh, and like he just like bumps into it and... Uh, the grocery store and there's books on there and all those books are written by Stephen King. So I like, I do like those little moments of, uh, uh, surrounding and there's a couple of them in here. Chad. The flamethrower used by the army was actually constructed from parts purchased at home Depot. And Darabont said that scared him to death. Ooh, I, I would think so. Yeah. (laughs) John. Um, where was it? is that so William Sadler? We've talked a lot about uh, repeat actors, uh, and he had been in the Shawshank Redemption already. But this wasn't his first experience with the Mist. Uh, he played David Drayton in the audio version of the story. That's cool. I didn't know that. Very cool. I've got one here in the pharmacy scene. Again, on a similar note, like the books, uh, David Drayton uh, takes a comic book for his little boy uh, while uh, he's getting the meds and trying to get out, which, by the way, they move through that pharmacy entirely too slowly, uh, for my taste. (laughs) Um, 
But uh, Darabont's proposed that the comic book be Punisher War Journal because Thomas Jane, as Chad had alluded to earlier, was the Punisher in 2004. Um, well, he didn't have a good fall, uh, relationship with the producers of that and chose not to return for the sequel. And he really kind of had some bad feelings about that. So he instead grabs an issue of Hellboy because he wanted that one to be there because he's friends with Ron Perlman and thought that would be a fun nod to Ron Perlman. So... Hellboy, not Punisher. Chad? <laughs> Last one for me. So when the cast reacts to the earthquake, is actually genuine. They weren't warned ahead of time that it'd be piped in through large bass speakers. Scared them all to death. John? Actually, Russell, I, I think you, you might like this one, but uh, Frank Darabont originally did not intend to have that giant six-legged behemoth that walks over the car. What? Uh, really? Even though, even though it's one of the novella's most popular scenes, but uh, several of the Cafe FX uh, special effects people convinced him to put it in the film. Good move, guys. Good move. I like that. Um, so uh, I actually like little details like this. Uh, um, you know, uh, there's an uh, there's an empty six shooter that Amanda has in her purse. It's a Colt SFV uh, six DS two. I'm not a gun person. The internet told me that. Uh, but uh, this is cool. She has a revolver with two full speed loaders of uh, which would mean twelve rounds. Uh, again, gun people, thank you for explaining this to me. But there are exactly twelve gunshots fired in the movie. And that's pretty cool. I like that little degree of uh, accuracy, keeping track of how many shots need to be fired. So, um, you know, I have wondered sometimes, and particularly in action movies, is like, how many shots does that revolver have? <laughs> yeah, and that's I'm, a good point. I did. Uh, I actually kept count when Ollie was shooting them because they they called out the number of bullets uh, a couple of times. So that was a a big point of emphasis in the movie. Yeah, and they did it right. So. Uh, they don't have, like, the uh, Star Wars laser clip that you can just shoot lasers all day long with no problem. And, uh, you know, it adds tension. So I want to ask you guys, how did this movie affect you, Chad? This movie was dark. It was heavy. It's hard to process. Uh, I've got a two-year-old at home. I can't even fathom losing my wife and then having to choose between... You know, just this horrendous death and just mercifully ending it for her and then make the wrong decision. So the grief and guilt that just washed over David at the end, it was just absolutely heartbreaking to watch. I I don't know if I were in his place that I could go on. I just, that was devastating. And I, so while I was watching that car scene, uh, of David about to shoot at everyone inside the car. I was actually thinking of The Walking Dead. Uh, I think it was season two where Carol, and she's played by Melissa McBride, she's instructing a young girl that she finds out is infected as a zombie to look at the flowers. And her intention is to shoot this girl in the back of the head without the girl knowing. And it's just this tragic scene with this monstrous choice that has to be made and so when i saw that car scene it just immediately was recall back to that very famous scene in the walking dead and just <laughs> extreme sadness throughout this entire movie mm. how about you john how did this movie make you feel 
Well, as I kind of mentioned before, you know, it was it was a tough tough one to swallow when I first saw it when I didn't have a kid, but I have an almost one year old now, and so you know, just kind of like Chad was saying, it, it makes it all that much much more difficult to watch. But you know, what made that decision e- even so much harder is just it's also the fact that he promised his son he would not let the monsters get him. Like he he's got to keep that promise. You know, it's like he can't, it's not even just he's, you know, saving him from that. It's like I, he promised him that that's not going to happen. And so it's, in his mind, the only decision he can make. And then, you know, after that, I, I'd be so pissed at the military if I truly thought that they were responsible for this. I, I, I would just charge him and hope that they kill me. Like, I just like, because I, I just don't think you come back from that. I don't think there's any way, as you mentioned, you know, you lose your wife and then not not only do that to your son, but then a few other people like and just how do you I, I don't even know how you'd ever come back from that. No, that as you guys mentioned, that is a heavy ending. I think it makes it harder too that they, uh, they immediately run out of gas and they're like, well, well, we better shoot ourselves. And I thought that it would have been nicer if they had like implied there had been another sunset like they look really sweaty like they haven't had a shower in like 12 days or something like that and then they're you know they've they've sat there and there's you know you know they're running out of water or something like that i it just uh it, that that the, the quickness at which he comes to that resolution and then the quickness it comes to the realization afterwards really bothered me but um you know uh that, that well, they was... all they all agreed the adults agreed to it like silently but they knew it's what had to happen. It made it, this movie uh, makes me question coming out of there, and I, I am frustrated very much, particularly by the ending. But it makes me question what I would do in this situation, and I don't think it would have taken the same path. But I think it would have handled the situation somewhat more like Andre Brower did. Uh, I think the fact that he is an independent thinker who doesn't really care what you're going to do, I'm going to do what I think is a good idea. And I'm fine with, like, you know, you all can do that if that's what you want to do. But I feel like this is the most helpful thing for the situation. If you want to help me out, then I've got a team over here and we'll, we'll do our thing. But uh, I think I probably would be like that in the situation. And so I, I found myself asking, personally, uh, I would not aim to leave so early. I tend to be a conservative decision maker. But um, my task list would have definitely been uh, drastically fortifying the store. Uh, you know, why did they not move the shelves and you know, completely cover the glass with more than dog food, but to actually brace it so that you actually have intentional closure and ensure you've got two means of egress at either side that are easily blockable, but also unblockable to get out so that you don't get trapped in there should the place catch on fire. You got to worry about rationing out the food. You got to like... You know, think about you should be collecting fresh water because you never know if you're like fresh water is going to like go on you. So you got to take advantage of running water while you've got it. And then you got to start talking about conserving energy. And so you could like build a team and everybody could take a different job. So I don't know. I just don't I have a hard time seeing myself hanging myself like the soldiers do. I guess I always take on a problem and I just go to handle the problem at the time. And so, you know, if the problem is to get out of the car and now we have to start walking, well, I, I guess it worked out pretty good for, uh, you know, the mother who without no the mother who had to get back to her kids. I mean, if the car stopped on me, I might look back to the back seat and be like, I know this isn't going to be a fan with the older crew, but uh, I'm not stopping here. <laughs> I'm going to keep walking. So, uh, but I, 
but you know, a lot of what you said, I think it's all well and good, but I think what they illustrated the movie very well is good luck getting everyone on that page, man. Like, it right. just, it, it, it's not going to happen. Like, hey, let's do this, this, and that. Like, they're just not going to listen to you. Like, no, when, but I would start doing it myself. Like I said, he had a team of five people, so I'd be like, I'm, I'm removing the food from these shelves, and I will be putting them up against the glass. And it's like, you can go do what you want to do, but that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you get too many cooks in the kitchen, and it, it becomes a little bit... Because they even kind of touch, it's like, hey, as long as the machines are working and you can dial 911 then people are all good and decent folks. But, you know, they also just didn't know what they were dealing with. Uh, when you're in that kind of, like, we're thinking from a logical standpoint, but when you get people starting to be that scared, they become irrational. It's and, true. Uh, but the tentacle, it, it, the, the large tentacle creature says you're dealing with something large. Well, but a lot of them wouldn't even believe them. That's like, true. That's true. You know, they're just like, you're, you're just making this all up. Like, you know, that's... And, and I mean, this is an educated man saying it to them. Like, well, when, once the guy goes out to his car and doesn't come back, that's that's a pretty strong gesture. I think that was scientifically proven that, uh, hey, half your body will be ripped off. So, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a pretty good gauge. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other thing was Mrs. Carmody would have driven me nuts. I mean, I would have probably, probably been uh, a lot less respectful and not let her have her full words at some point and i i don't know i probably would have been a just like we're not starting a riot here and you're starting a problem and you will be shut in a closet with a piece of duct tape over your mouth we'll give you water food and you can go to the bathroom but uh you know knock it off <laughs> stop I feel stirring. like i feel like you're slowly transforming into some of the dictator bad guys <laughs> uh stop stirring people up do you want to be locked in an Armageddon situation with Russell? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. You're going to have a well-fortified grocery store if you do, though. <laughs> All I'm saying, duly noted. Yeah, tell that. Tell that to the girl who got like her like like neck like injected by like the uh, stinger. So we got to get into uh-huh. the super- yeah we, yeah we got to get into the superlatives though. Uh, um, MVP Chad. For me, once again, it's going to be the director. It's Frank Darabont. Uh, his idea of changing the novella's open ending to a much darker tone is what makes this movie for me. It's what mi- makes it memorable, uh, makes it horrifying. Uh, without it, I just don't think it's nearly as impactful. John, MVP. Well, I, I heard part of what Chad said, but I, I have to go, go again. Darabont has to be uh, the MVP here. He drove the whole thing to be what it is, and uh, it's really his idea, although it was King's story. I think none of this works without him. Okay, okay. For MVP, I, I could not give it to Darabont. I, I actually think that he might be one of the weaker links on this whole production, and horror is not his thing. So I'm going to part ways with John and Chad on this one. I'm going to give it to Marcia Gay Harden. I, I thought that she did a good job of playing this uh, convincing religious nut uh, that, you know, was warping religion to gain influence. So uh, she, she was the only other one I considered in all fairness. I, I thought about going with her. I, just I think, really did. I think her acting, I think in a movie with not a lot of acting in it, she, she delivered good acting. So uh, best supporting actor, Chad. Andre Brower for me, he, 
not only brought interest to a neighbor that really didn't have a lot of personality, but he also brought in that uh, racial factor that you you brought in. You talked about earlier. Um, I I think I read this that uh, Brower actually improvised one of the lines that inferred that there was racial tension. So what what he brought there was just another element uh, to the store's tension. So I, I have to go with Marsha Gay Harden. Uh, I would have. I considered her for MVP, but her ability to play that religious type kook slash maniac, uh, she really brought life into that role and into the whole situation in the store. Uh, yeah. Now let's get into, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, my supporting actor is going to be Toby Jones, Ollie Weeks' character. I just like this character a lot. He's probably the most likable character in the store. And uh, I'm going to give a nod to William Sadler there. I thought he did a good job as Jim, the blue-collar guy who was easily excitable, but then very quickly transformed into a mindless, you know, uh, sheep who's just following Carmody later. So interesting. Really, there are a few good ones. And William Sadler's a great throw in there, too. I'm glad you did. Yeah, I just had to mention him because I thought his character did some interesting transformation. Uh, Hidden Jim. Chad? Francis Sternhagen, who played Irene, I just, I tend to gravitate towards these uh, crotchety old women, and she nails it. Uh, they I stone people when... in the Bible, and I've got more peas. Exactly. That's that's the scene that nailed it for me when she uh, beans Carmody with, with uh, it may have even been a can of beans. It was See? a can of something. See, she uh, gets it. I would have been nicer and put a piece of duct tape on her. Amanda's slapping her. She's throwing beans at her. I would have just, I would have been nice about it. I would have been like, but you're going in timeout. It's hard to, hard to call someone a buzzard and it come off natural, but she pulled it off. Yeah. This was her third Stephen King film, by the way. Uh, She was also in Misery and uh, Golden Years. Really? Yeah. What's your head, Jim, John? So, uh, uh, ironically, I feel like I'm just taking yours from the previous one. I, I'm going with Toby Jones as Ollie Weeks. He was likable, capable, and uh, I think he's a really good actor anyway. But uh, I hadn't really known him at the time when I saw this movie, and I thought he did it very well. I'm going to go with another repeat Darabont uh, guy, Brian Libby, who is a biker. And I just thought I bought him as this gruff, don't care biker. Uh, I just uh, I liked him. Recast, which means you can you have to choose somebody from the cast to recast and preferably give a suggestion for who you would like to recast them with. Uh, John, why don't you go first on this one since Chad keeps taking all of your since you guys are of two of one mind tonight? <laughs> uh, well, you know, honestly, this one, I, I always feel like it's a really tough one to do. But for me, honestly, Chris Owen, I just. I, I can't help but think of like American Pie and Angus, uh, and I just couldn't really buy him as a kid anymore. The Shermanator. So, that's why the, I know the, him so well. The 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 Shermanator. Yeah. Oh, it's like, okay. I thought he was Scott Farkas, and I knew it wasn't just Angus. I was like, yeah, he's an Angus, but he's something else. And you just cleared it up. Thank you. So it, it wasn't even as much as that he did a, a a bad job, but I just kind of feel like they could have gone with a younger, like more high school. Type type character, sure. and you know, you know, there's all, all sorts of them out there, really. Uh, but it, Do you I, have one? I, I, well, uh, I was trying to think of whether it'd be the time when they did it or now, but uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. But I was thinking about it. if you could land someone like this, but the uh, who, who 
what's the name of the kid who plays Spider-Man? Uh, Tom Holland. Tom Holland. I think he would have been a really good, good pick for a younger bag boy. Okay. Is yeah, Chad. Uh, so your turn now. Recast. So it's time for me to be really mean. Uh, I'm recasting Laurie Holden. She plays Amanda. There's just something about this actress that I don't like, and I feel terrible about it. She's done nothing to me. I don't even think she's a bad actress. I just don't like her. Uh, She played Andrea in The Walking Dead. I hated that character, even before she gave me a reason to hate that character. That's the first experience I had with her. I just, I want her gone. I feel like she's a little cold and distant. Uh, I'd want to cast someone maybe a little younger and warmer. not a great actress, but I might go with someone like Jessica Biel. Uh, or if we're sticking with the Walking Dead cast members, I'd go with Lauren Cohen. She played Maggie in The Walking Dead. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Thomas Jane for my recast. Um, I just didn't think he nailed the, the warmth with his son. I didn't think his emotional uh, just yelling and like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think his, I didn't think he nailed, that was a heavy scene that your wife's dead and furthermore that your son's dead. And I thought he came up really short there. I don't think you need a character to be this muscly um, for the, for the role. He's a painter. Um, I do not get a creative person out of this at all. Um, Or so anyway, I was quite unhappy with Thomas Jane's performance here. And I went with Eric. I would like to see Eric Bana do it. Now Bana is tough enough to be tough. But I think that he has the range to be able to be a good father figure and to actually deliver the emotion that's needed. And so he would be coming off of uh, Munich in this. And, uh, you know, his career doesn't really blossom at that point. So, uh, you know, I'd be taking him away from a few other movies like Lucky You and uh, Romulus, My Father. So uh, giving him a lead role in The Mist probably would have been a better step for him. So Eric Ban is my choice for the lead. So... Best shot, uh, Chad. John's already mentioned it earlier on, but it, uh, for me, it's when David sees the mist recede and the army carrying the survivors. It's just visceral, and you can just immediately feel that anguish and the regret that's just going through him, and it's it's heartbreaking. Uh, John, best shot. Um, we might be in danger of a, a clean sweep here. Uh, it, it's that one, and it's not just that, but it's it's how it zooms out, and you really see how much of like these creatures have settled in. And I mean, the spiders we saw before were nothing like the giant ones they're burning at the end. Uh, those things looked like they were about five to ten feet wide. Uh, it, it just seeing the the scale of all of it, but zooming out after all of that and seeing the operation and how massive this thing was. I think that was the best shot. Well, I might be Andre Brower because you guys are staying in the store, but I'm going to go over here. Um, I'm going to say my, my best shot is Miss Carmody in the bathroom. This is probably the only scene that is uh, uses darkness, that she's got the candles in there, she's crying, and uh, I thought that this is an important scene that shows you that this lady is actually crazy, and she's not just playing a piano to get people to behave the way she wants them. She's really crazy. And that made the movie a lot more interesting. So that's my best shot of the movie as a, as a directorial moment, even though I've been a little bit tough on him. So uh, best scene, Chad. I think I like the generator scene with Norm. Uh, it's the first 
basis of understanding of just how screwed the patrons are and how powerful the creatures can be. And I think they do a pretty thorough job of showing you that this is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. John, best scene. Um, I, I think I'm going a little bit different with it on, I, I actually really like the pharmacy scene. It's, uh, it's got a lot of tension. It, it, it elevates things in so many levels. And honestly, it's the only one that gave me a true jump when the military policeman, uh, kind of wakes up as it were, uh, it gave me a legitimate scare, but it really showed how awful things are outside of the store and what dire straits they were in. It's true. Uh, money for nothing. No. Um, <laughs> uh, not uh, not the fun kind of dire straits. Oh, okay. Never mind then. Uh, best scene for me. I'm going to go the night the, bud, the bugs and the buzzards get in, which, by the way, I've already established I would prevent from happening because I would have properly fortified the glass windows for the fourth time. Uh, but anyway, um, it makes for an interesting scene when they do get in and people are catching themselves on fire. I like the chaos that ensues. I like the fact that people have to really... You know, how do you deal with the fast-paced terror and people's panic? That was probably, to me, the most interesting scene. So uh, uh, a lot of things happen, and uh, I, I like that one. So best quote. Chad. Ollie, the store manager, he says, As a species, we're fundamentally insane. Put more than two of us in a room, we pick sides and start dreaming up reasons to kill one another. Why do you think we invented politics and religion? That's a good one. That's just a good line in general. Uh, John? I, I had a feeling that one would be, be taken uh, by the time it got to me. So I had one in the can, and I just kind of like this one. But uh, a- after Norm uh, was taken away by the tentacles, I did like David Drayton's uh, saying, uh, he, he's an effing kid. He's supposed to be stupid. What's your yeah. excuse? Yeah, that was great. Um, I'm going to go with another one. And I, I very nearly picked the one Chad picked. and But I, I felt like this one just really actually uh, nailed what I would have said. Uh, so the biker uh, yells at Carmody. is like, not yells at her, actually. He just dismissively says, hey, crazy lady, I believe in God, too. I just don't think he's the bloodthirsty asshole you make him out to be. I love that. Yes, all of those are good. There's a lot of good quotes in this film, actually. Yeah, there are. Um, change one thing. Go, Chad. I'm changing Andre Brow's character, Brent Norton, to be a little bit more reasonable or a little bit more backstory why he isn't. So half the store is screaming about tentacle monsters, and he thinks they're playing a joke on him. And it's just kind of a weird reaction for me, like, where is this coming from when people are panicking, saying, hey, a kid's dead in the back room. Don't you want to check it out? And he's like, nah, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I, I like the idea that he walks unscathed through town, just barely missing everything. Like all this pandemonium's going on around him, like Billy Joe Armstrong and like the Green Day's walking contradiction music video where everything's just like going like oh, terrible for him. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, he's like, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm fine. Uh, John, change one thing. Uh, well, actually, I, I it was kind of in the line with Chad. I was just going to say that uh, maybe 
make Andre Brower's character leave a little bit later. It felt a little early for me that he would kind of go then, even if he was someone that was going to do his own thing. Uh, it just didn't seem like what an educated and, you know, somewhat reasonable man would do. Like, yeah, yeah, screw you guys. I'm getting here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, it, it is a bit of a Cartman move. <laughs> uh, my change one thing would be the ending. I didn't care for it. And I, I like the abstract ending that King wrote. And King can say that he likes it, but I also heard that they gave him a big check. And I also heard that he liked what they did with Under the Dome. And um, that's not... Uh, that, that would that didn't go well either in the third season of Under the Dome. So well, where uh, did the big check come from out of sixteen million dollars? Uh, it made more money than it cost to make it. So okay, uh, there's a there's a lot of profit to be made as you mentioned. Not a uh, uh, let's see, I, it made twenty five million. So that's still that's still. <laughs> anyway, I, I think it just works better for film. Like I I, I like the ending for a book, but. I think it actually works. It's like the Nicolas Cage on Saturday Night Live is like, it had all the makings of a Nicolas Cage movie. One, I heard that there were actors in it. Two, I heard the actors were paid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, Chad, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, Another work by Mike Flanagan is called Hush. That's also on Netflix. It stars Kate Siegel, who plays Theodora on The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, she's deaf, mute. Uh, her, uh, her character's name is Maddie, and she's being stalked by a mass killer inside her own house. And the elements of her impairments just makes it a different twist on that traditional home invasion movie. It's tense, it's fascinating, and I think you'll have a good time. Thanks for that. Um, so, Time for everybody's rating on a five-star scale. Chad, what do you give 2007's The Mist? This is such a unique position of a film because I did enjoy it. Uh, I don't think I'll be seeing this movie again for a long, long time. Uh, I'd caution anyone else uh, of viewing this because it can really catch you off guard. I would give it four stars. Some of the CGI is kind of rough for me. Uh, It's only going to get worse as it gets older. Uh, but it really transforms itself from like run-of-a-mill monster movie to just a horrific decision, just a, a great examination of a doomsday scenario for me. So uh, four stars. Four stars. John, what do you got? Five-star scale. I, I think that it, it kind of transcends some of your classic kind of horror genre and really just gives you a good cross-section of psychological thinking among different people so uh i i actually bumped it up for that reason uh, up to four and a half for me uh especially being i i just really like the adaptation of king's work in this does it hold up for you i think it does the cgi is not as important to me maybe i'm just a little softer on it but uh it's not the drive of the movie in my mind um so for me I, I struggled with this. It's it's very uneven for me. It's great for characters and for constructing characters, and that's something that a movie like this often fails to do. Uh, it, it's moderate in the effects department. I'm willing to give it some excuse for being in the early days of computer. Uh, so 
I'm not as taken aback by it as Chad. However, uh, the director's execution on this, this does not look like someone who knows how to make a good horror movie and um, does not set the right mood. Um, so, and I hated the ending. And so I, there's part of me that wants to like really go mean on this, but then they did a good job of constructing characters. And so King's source material is so good. And I think they do a good job with the characters. So in the end, I'm going to give it three stars. John, do you want to tell us what our choices are for next time? We are still keeping the Halloween theme, but we're doing a little bit of a shift to a more fun type. Need a palate cleanser after this one? Yeah, I, th- I think we're, we need a little bit of a, we're not going to say a happy movie, but a more fun one. So I have three for you here. We have from 1984 Gremlins. A boy inadvertently breaks three important rules concerning his new pet and unleashes a horde of malevolently mischievous monsters on a small town. From 1990, we have the movie Tremors, uh, where uh, a small town gradually becomes aware of a strange creature which picks off people one by one. Well, what is this creature and where is it? And finally, we have from 2004, Shaun of the Dead. A man decides to turn his morbid life around by winning back his ex-girlfriend, reconciling his relationship with his mother, and dealing with an entire community that has returned from the dead to eat the living. Wow, I've seen all three of these. Uh, yeah, we did a 2000s movie here, so let's, let's go back in time. Let's do Tremors for next time. Tremors it is. Tremors. I like it. Well, thank you to all of the Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable for tuning in and listening to us. Give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Email us at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. John. Yeah. We're going to need a bigger boat.